0: From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today, we're continuing our series on the career of filmmaker Witt Stillman, director of movies like Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, and Love and Friendship.
1: And if we had had a small disco nightclub, which sort of did come along at the time we were making the movie, like the time we were making disco, the popular dance clubs were much smaller places, and it would have been cooler if we sort of stopped trying to make it Studio 54-ish and made it a really popular club that's not so big. And it would have, could have looked better and would have saved us millions of dollars because it's so expensive uh, shooting with masses of extras like that. Wow.
0: On today's show, we're exploring Stillman's third film, the conclusion to his so-called doomed bourgeoisie and love trilogy, The Last Days of Disco, a culmination of his 90s work which resulted in 12 years of what he calls development heck. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Entertainment, I'm Tom Noblock. For the past few weeks, we've been tracking the career of filmmaker Witt Stillman, a writer and director who entered the scene with 1990's Metropolitan, a wry comedy about debutante parties. The film, which was truly independent in its financing and production, became an unlikely success, launching several careers from its cast of Unknowns and earning Stillman an Oscar nomination for its screenplay. This was a unique moment in American cinema, a time where independent became not just an economic condition, but a brand. Studios began to harness the idea of independent cinema and crafted entire marketing campaigns around authentic voices as brands, your Quentin Tarantino's, your Richard Linklater's, Robert Rodriguez's, Kevin Smith's, Sofia Coppola's, and many more. Here's a clip from Richard Linklater's Slacker, a movie only Richard Linklater could have made, in which he plays the first central character.
2: Wait, man, there was this
0: book I just read on the book. Well, you know, it was my dream, so I guess I wrote it or something. But, uh, man, it was bizarre. It was like um, the premise for this whole book was that every thought you have creates its own reality. You know, it's like every choice or decision you make,
2: the thing you choose not to do fractions off and becomes its own reality, you know, and just goes on from there forever. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, in The
0: Wizard of Oz. When Dorothy meets the Scarecrow and they do that little dance at that crossroads and they think about going all those directions, then they end up going in that one direction. I mean, all those other directions, just because they thought about it, became separate realities. I mean, they just went on from there and lived the rest of their life, you know, just, I mean, entirely different movies. But we'll never see it because, you know, we're kind of trapped in this one reality restriction type of thing, you know. For American cinema in the 90s, an independent filmmaker was like a cowboy, a lone artist in a corporate wasteland but who often could find ways to team with that corporate wasteland to get passion projects off the ground, and often with respectable budgets, and then they could find a substantial audience through studios like Miramax. This became the reconstructed American auteur, the director as author, with a distinct style, voice, and personality. It would build from film to film, and it has roots in the French New Wave and the New Hollywood era of the 1970s. But in the 90s, it found itself merging with corporate studio interests in an unprecedented way. If Miramax was the house that Quentin built, then there are two strands of American auteurs. One would be those following the shadow of Tarantino's highly stylized, violent, genre-pastiche approach to filmmaking.
3: It's cooler,
0: Desperado, the new film from Robert Rodriguez. And the other strand is those exploring their own lives and experiences in dramatic or comedic ways through largely stripped-down human stories. Witt Stillman falls into the latter category.
2: Saturday, I took my niece, who's seven, to see the Disney movie Lady and the Tramp. She loved it; it was so cute. I'm beginning to fall in love with the whole idea of having kids. I hate that movie.
0: A descendant of Ernst Lubitsch and Preston Sturges, and a precursor to Noah Baumbach and the Mumblecore movement of the 2000s.
2: This sweet movie about cute cartoon dogs—you found depressing. There is something depressing about it, and it's not really about dogs. Except for some superficial Bow Wow stuff at the start, the dogs all represent human types, which is where it gets into real trouble.
0: His films are funny and sweet, often finding a balance between biting and gentle ribbing as he interrogates often comfortable young people navigating their transition into adult life. Insipid,
2: Tramp, the love interest, is a smarmy braggart of the most obnoxious kind, an oily jailbird out for a piece of tail or whatever you can get.
1: Oh, come on.
2: No, he's a self-confessed chicken thief and all-around sleazeball. What's the function of a film of this kind? Essentially, as a primer on love and marriage, directed at very young people, imprinting on their little psyches the idea that smooth-talking delinquents
1: recently escaped from the local pound are a good match for nice girls from sheltered homes.
0: In the same way, you know what I mean if I call something a Quentin Tarantino film or a Wes Anderson film. It isn't hard to spot the cohesive style, concerns, and sensibilities of Stillman across his filmography. I spoke with critic Mariah E. Gates, who has written for RogerEbert.com, Emmy Mag, The Playlist, and more about what it means to call something a Witt Stillman film.
3: I think he's one of the great uh, contemporary writers of comedy of manners. Almost all of his films are not necessarily satire, but definitely um, critiquing certain social mores of a certain upper echelon in society, mostly New York, but obviously he has the one Jane Austen film. But I think he's really interested in those interpersonal relationships at that economic level.
0: What's uh, what's like a, the tradition of comedy of manners that you'd say he's operating in or updating?
3: Oh, sort of very dialogue heavy, very witty. Not necessarily what people say is biting, but us watching them say things is what's biting, if that makes sense. So the characters aren't necessarily aware that they're being critiqued, although they certainly, like Chris Egman's characters in most of his films, he's critiquing people. But for the most part... They're people who are sort of unaware of the fact that they are being looked at from the audience's point of view. And and so they say they are just themselves, yet in the way that he presents them, the audience can see that critique.
0: I think about Metropolitan, which has that sort of outsider perspective, right? There's Tom Townsend, who is not really of the yeah. world. He's maybe kind of adjacent enough to it. to Just, just, want it. just
3: barely. Yeah. <laughs> which
0: which then gives the audience a different perspective as opposed to just totally being stuck in that world. Right. Because Tom Townsend uh, can look at it and critique it and aspire to it and there's so many dramatic complications that come from that without us having to totally relate to these very rich maybe uh not totally relatable characters
3: yeah and i i think um what's interesting about most of his films is that they aren't totally relatable and i think that's why some of some of his films were less well regarded like i was just watching Siskel and Ebert talking about The Last Days of Disco and Siskel hated that film because he didn't like the characters and I I kind of think Stillman likes the characters because he's from like these are based on people he knows or his own experience but that doesn't mean we have to like the characters to find them compelling. I think that's that's what's interesting because we, we because Stillman likes the characters even if we can't relate to them at least we can enjoy spending time with them because Stillman enjoys spending time with them. I think that's, what's interesting about his films.
0: I talked to Taylor Nichols for this and he mentioned that he sort of sees the two sides of Whit Stillman come through in the characters that they played most, most specifically in Barcelona, which is one has mm-hmm. this warmth and kindness toward this world. That's, you know, maybe kind of isolated, insulated, uh, and then the other is very critical and almost self-hating uh, and kind of like, you know, you've got the, the id sort of element through Chris Eigemann as the, the darker side of it. There is darkness that's kind of interesting in the movies too, uh, maybe a little bit more so as the, at least his 90s trilogy goes on. But
3: Doomed yuppies in love, I think <laughs> is what he called them.
0: Yes. And the, the 90s trilogy in particular seems to resonate in a way that's a little bit unique and a little bit divorced from what he's done since. Why, why do you think the 90s movies in particular are still so well regarded and still you know screened around the country?
3: I think part of it really is that they were inspired by memories of Stillman. Um, he has this great quote about how uh, he doesn't do research, at least for these films. He didn't do research. It's just in the writing, these memories of of his life come through in the characters in the fiction he's creating in the version of reality that he's creating and and i think that his films that are more distanced from his own experiences are harder to relate to because they don't have that memory connected to them they don't have that emotional center and i don't know that stillman means to have more of an emotional center I'm sure he he as he writes all of his films from the same place in his heart it's just there's something about what got imparted in these first three that I think are transcendent. I also think because they like the last days of disco is disco is supposed to be in the early 80s but it's not you never know exactly what year and I feel like all three of his films are almost from the trilogy are almost period pieces. The borderline on fairy tales, because they you can't ever really tell when they're set. They're they're vaguely, you know, Barcelona is vaguely during the Olympics and Metropolitan is is vaguely any time actually. I don't even think they ever really say when it's supposed to be. I think his experiences were in the late 60s. So I think because he creates these timeless Period pieces—they're a little of both. They, they never—they never quite felt contemporary at the time. They don't feel contemporary now. You never can quite tell when it is, and so they sort of are on this effervescent plane of existence.
0: When when I've talked to Witt Stillman, um, usually the references that he makes are literary. They're you know the the most predictable would be Jane Austen, uh, Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. You know these sort of classic uh, authors. Not a lot of contemporary authors came up when I've talked to him, and it makes me think. Do you think the unique style that's sort of both fairy tale comedies, comedies of manners, is he working within a clear film grammar that you can tie to a tradition of filmmakers? Or is it kind of his own because it's drawing so much from a literary tradition that he's sort of inventing a grammar for?
3: I think it is sort of his own. I think you can definitely see a bit of the kind of films he makes in the 30s sort of Um, especially the pre-code sort of um, drawing room comedies. I'm thinking like Norma Shearer made a few of these. uh, I think it's Their Own Desire. No, Private Lives, Private Lives, which was um, itself adapted from Noel Coward. So I think you can feel those films that were also drawn from literary sources like the Noel Coward adaptations. And to some extent, Paul Mazurski's I think is the, maybe the closest director that I would say is similar in that Mazurski made films that feel like they could have been adaptations of something like Noel Coward, but they aren't. They're all his own creation. And I think Whit Stillman has that same uh, feeling where it, it isn't really drawing from anything direct. It's not a direct line, but it is in the same sort of waiting pool as as these previously made films. <laughs>
2: this country was a dancing wasteland. You know the Woodstock generation of the 1960s that were so full of themselves and conceited? None of those people could dance.
0: And I spoke with Whit Stillman about how his third film came to be and cemented his signature style in the age of new American auteurs. That's after this break.
2: I have a very bad feeling about the clubs. It's like a meteorite is headed straight forward. It's going to destroy everything. Yeah, well, I don't think it'll be a meteorite. Something deeply ingrained in human biology. Women prefer bad over weak and indecisive and unemployed. I don't know about that. You think they do prefer
0: Welcome back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock, and I'm talking with filmmaker Witz Stillman about his third film, The Last Days of Disco. The conclusion in what is often referred to as his doomed bourgeoisie and love trilogy. Each film follows characters navigating the tensions between who they thought they'd be and who they became, often set in a backdrop of a changing world threatening to leave people like them behind. As you might guess, in the case of his 1998 film, the focus is disco.
2: Disco will never be over. It will always live in our minds and hearts. Something like this that was this big and this important and this great will never die. Oh, for a few years, maybe many years, it'll be considered passe and ridiculous. It'll be misrepresented and caricatured and sneered at, or worse, completely ignored. People will laugh about John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, white polyester suits and platform shoes and going like this. But we had nothing to do with those things and still love disco. Those who didn't understand will never understand. Disco was much more and much better than all that. Disco was too great and too much fun to be gone forever. It's got to come back someday. I just hope it will be in our own lifetimes. Sorry, I've got a job interview this afternoon. I was trying to get revved up, but most of what I said, I uh, believe.
0: I spoke with Stillman about how the film came about and how it marked a turning point in his career. A seemingly triumphant finale of his independent trilogy with a much larger budget than he'd worked with before. And then a transition into what he calls 12 years of exile from filmmaking. Disco would also prove to be the last time Stillman worked with Chris Eichemann who many critics up to this point described as the director's mouthpiece in his work, some going so far as to describe Eigemann as Stillman's mascot. Um, Emmanuel Levy writes in Cinema of Outsiders that the Eigemann character disappears from Metropolitan too soon, and in Barcelona his character is in a coma for a whole act. As if to correct these mistakes, in the last days of disco, Stillman avoids putting Eigemann's Des out of action, and he creates a female Eigemann character in Charlotte, played by Kate Beckinsale. (laughs) uh i want to get your response to that
1: (laughs) well actually the first um remark i saw about that was the fellow who wrote mugger in new york press i think he came out very strongly um that the film lost its energy when argument left um yeah i don't really agree with emmanuel levy i'm glad he got to like the films better it is an issue but i think there's enough going on that's funny um The two films that were really popular were actually the ones where the Taylor Nichols character was allowed to come to the fore. And I think that Taylor Nichols in in his performances in those two films has a warmth that they needed. And so critics can say, oh, it's missing the Chris Eigerman funny character. But actually, I think people really like to have some of the warmth of Taylor Nichols. And if you... Have Chris Eigeman all the time. You're not going to get that, um, and so Metropolitan and Barcelona were much more popular films than the Last Days of Disco initially. Um, and so I, I would I would disagree with Emmanuel, but it's interesting. It's it's an astute comment. Uh,
0: and this Eigeman was a, at some point not going to be in Disco, right? Wasn't there a, an iteration where I think I'd read online yeah. that maybe Ben Affleck was even interested in that role?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's Ben yeah, Affleck one.
0: That's a different type of movie. It's interesting uh for him to be kind of the mascot. But then I I think I had read that you and Iggman or maybe Iggman had the idea that you guys it was time to break off to stop being the mascot and to sort of get uh, I don't know different experience. So I wonder your take on that. I mean there there's a version of this movie starring I think what Winona Ryder maybe Ben Affleck, who knows who else. Uh how different is that movie? Was was did you agree it was time to mix things up and didn't get over that disagreement?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think he he at least said that, um, that, you know, we should do different things. Um, and I was under a lot of pressure, um, to, to, to work with different, bigger names. Um, and thank heavens, um, it turned out differently. So, you know, other people were considered, but it was Chris Hagerman part. So I had Chris Hagerman's version in my head and, no one, no matter how great, probably was going to be the Dez I had in mind when I wrote it, because I wrote it for him. And um, so we walked around the block of Billy Hopkins' casting studio and talked about it and um, came to the good conclusion, which was that he do it. And I'd really like to, you know, work with um, with Chris and Taylor again, with all the actors I worked with on that, on, on the early films, because they were all really good. I love working with the same actors uh, more than once, and I don't know why people don't do it more often.
0: I, I thought it was interesting, too, that Last Days of Disco has some interesting echoes of Metropolitan. Like I was just rewatching it last week, and I thought uh, the character of Dan, played by Matt Ross, is sort of the Tom Townsend in the sense that he's, yeah. he's judging, he's on the outside. When he gets in, ooh, it's actually pretty nice. I like it, I like it a lot, maybe. <laughs> Um, and, but he's, he's not the focus, uh, or at least one of the, I think, primary characters, uh protagonist of that movie. But I, I did, th- it made me think about Alice played by Chloe Savini, uh, as in some ways, the Audrey, if we were to try to impose Metropolitan on it. And I wondered for you, was Disco meant to be kind of a reflection on some of what you tried to do with Metropolitan now coming from a, a more seasoned perspective?
1: Well, it wasn't an attempt to do that, but I think you um, are sort of condemned to, to the same patterns, and it's something you have to kind of watch. Um, I think there's some novelists and, and I guess, filmmakers uh, who repeat a lot, and, and, and some of that's good. People sort of want some of the same stuff, um, and it can be reconfigured and rejuggled, um, but the sort of patterns you, you get into and things you find interesting or sympathetic.
0: Now, as far as uh, disco goes, it's got this big. Uh, it's it's bigger, both in terms of the sets, in terms of the budget. Uh, I don't know as far as production goes for you. Did it feel like this was kind of you taking what you'd done before and ramping it up to? Epic's probably the wrong word, but a, a more epic place.
1: Yes, and I think it was that was was a mistake. I think we were trying to impress people too much with the sort of size and importance of the discotheque and it's sort of overwhelmed our kind of production and cost just a fortune that was sort of unnecessary. Um, so I, th- one thing in cinema is that things that are small in real life actually look better on the screen than things that are big in real life, many, many cases. And so we had this huge space then which requires absolutely tons of people to make it look like it's a popular place and then you do sort of an overhead shot of it and it just doesn't look like much and if we had had a small disco nightclub which sort of did come along at the time we were making the movie like the time we were making disco the popular dance clubs were much smaller places and it would have been cooler if we sort of stopped trying to make it studio 54-ish and made it a really popular club that's not so big, um, and it would have could have looked better, and would have saved us millions of dollars because it's so expensive uh, shooting with masses of extras like that. Wow, and the extras. I got are- to have second. Okay. I got to have second helpings at any catered affair for the next uh, four years because <laughs> <laughs> the, the catering staff had made so much money as extras in Last Days of Disco. That I was very popular in, in the people waiting and catering uh, in New York uh, in the subsequent years.
0: And the, the dancing, uh, the the, the uh, extras as well as the main characters are often dancing, which dancing is present and it's a, a fairly notable part at least in each of your 90s movies. And it gets more prevalent, I think, in each sub- subsequent one. And I, I want to talk about your attraction to dancing and the the cinematic elements that you can sort of get out of a character when they dance, which what, what I thought maybe is part of it is there you can sort of hide yourself in language in the way that you choose to talk about yourself, which some of your characters do. But there's maybe a vulnerability and authenticity that comes through in the nonverbal action of dancing and getting lost in music. What is it that you like so much about including dancing in your movies?
1: Well, I love dancing and and dancing environments and and the music that goes with it. And it's something that's really um, fun and visual and cinematic and interesting and a a, a relief from from the talk um, in in cinema. And um, in our society, I think um, it's something that's really um, missing. It's not such an integral part of our uh, society as it was. And I think... No longer so much now, but um, when I was growing up or, or younger, we'd all say how, how wonderful, what wonderful dancers the older generation was. Um, you know, when there's a chance to dance, they would get up on the floor and, and, and be great. And it's because they grew up in a culture that was, was dancing. So if they grew up, if they became sort of adolescents, young adults in the 1930s, they were dancing a lot. And um you see old movies and, and my gosh they danced a lot. And one of my favorite French films is Under the Roofs of Paris, Sous les de Paris by René Clair. And oh my heavens, they they <laughs> dance all the time. Like every bar you go to, they dance and you go to a restaurant and they're dancing. And um it was really a part of our society. And this whole thing that people only dance at really decadent nightclubs after midnight is, is not really a solution. So that's why we have dancing in bars in, um, in last days of disco. I like the idea that people can go at a normal time of day and dance. I think the idea was the old tea dance places, you know, in the afternoon or cocktail hour, people could, could dance.
0: Dancing is something that we don't see much in movies. And also, if we do see it, it's usually this big uh, sort of emphatic scene where maybe characters are falling in love or maybe there's a seduction element to it. Whereas for yours, it just becomes kind of part of the culture of the movies. And I guess it becomes even more explicit with Damsels in Distress. Um, so, I don't know. Dancing, it's, it's something that I don't know that anyone else is doing dancing the way you were doing in the, the same way I don't know if anyone's doing Lionel Trilling jokes. Uh, you've, you've got these, uh, these sort of unique elements that you go back to uh, from movie to movie. And, again, it's sort of interesting when I think about the context of the auteurs and I think about the way that you developing a sort of singular voice – then enters into this tradition of people who are filmmakers inspired by filmmakers. And so like, by 1998, when Disco comes out, you've sort of been a mainstay in that type of cinema in the nineties. And I think you'd become an inspiration to some up and comers like notably, I think about Noah Baumbach's first couple of movies, um, uh, kicking and screaming.
1: No, was the only one. Someone didn't give him the memo. So he, he <laughs> was in our line for a couple of movies. Um, but in our day, it was really reservoir dogs. Um, that was the influential movie. Um, and it was all about guns. I mean, I think Sidney Pollack said something interesting. Um, he said, um, if you're a filmmaker, it's either uh, a, a gun or a kiss. It's either it's either going to be about romance or it's going to be about a gun or it's going to be about violence. Um, those are the two directions. And I think René Claire said, um, like, when people say, well, you do comedies or do you do dramas? And he says, like, are you blonde or brunette? You know, uh, you have the comic sensibility, or or you have the dramatic sensibility, and and that's what you do.
0: But you're somebody who appreciates the some of the gun stories, right? Like you're a big Ian Fleming fan. There there are some guns in Barcelona. Uh, it's not like you necessarily shirk away from genre, but I think maybe it comes back down to some of the the virtues of the characters and the art as well. Uh, but I mean, if you were, if you had gotten offered the chance to do like a your take on James Bond, w- would you take it?
1: No, no, I, I, I've always wanted to do that. So, um, uh, so I, I, would have loved to have done something like James Bond because in, in the '60s, I have the feeling that they were doing sort of the lighter, stylish, funny, funnier, less violent version. Um, so that, that's the period I like. I think they, they did, um, adventure films with some lightness and romance and, and comedy. Um, and I, I loved, uh as a child i loved zorro and i I really wanted to do a zorro but that was done by other people and of course they wouldn't think of me to do that and then um i wanted to a francis marion the swamp fox thing which is another show that was popular when we were kids um and then and then um mel gibson trashed, totally trashed that idea i mean he did a disgusting hyper violent misrepresentation of the story and um So, part of the idea of the series I'd like to do, um, which a German company is trying to get financing now, it's called The Splendid Affinities, um, is to get into that area um, in a TV series, so make it like the Diana Rigg Avengers from the 60s, and have, yes, action and adventure happening, but also the kind of stories we do in the other films.
0: This is sort of an aside that uh, I've just, I've wondered for a long time, but... um, in the Noah Baumbach movies in the '90s, uh, "Kicking and Screaming" and "Mr. Jealousy," he casts—I think I'm pronouncing it right—Carlos uh as one yeah. of the major characters. He makes a brief appearance in "Last Days of Disco" as a guy with a little dog and a sweater. Uh, I wondered, did did that casting come about because of Baumbach and uh, you know the sort of influence that he was using from your films?
1: I think it's more Chris Seggman was friends with him, ah. and so and also he's you know really good actor who all the casting people were, were keen on. and um, But, it, but it, was, it was really a Chris Agamon connection rather than a you Noah know, Baumbach connection in that case.
0: Was Disco meant to be a, a sort of wrapping up? Like I know people talk about it as a trilogy, uh, Mr. Barcelona, Last Days of Disco as sort of maybe the finale, even though like what Barcelona takes place after it. But uh, what was the idea that this was sort of wrapping up phase one of your career and you were looking forward to a kind of reinvention?
1: Um, the idea was that, um, the, the element, the, the, the idea was that this disco is this sort of place where people from all over the world that, you know, are coming and and you're gonna be surprised by the people you run into there and i love balzac's novels i love having a character from one story in another story it makes it seem like there's a fictional world out there and we're just getting framing of a life that's going on all the time and we just see glimpses of it and so it became very seductive the idea of having some characters from metropolitan um in the disco and some characters who will be going off to be in the story of barcelona because the sequence would be metropolitan would be earlier than disco and then barcelona in terms of chronology Um, and so taylor nichols actually plays both his metropolitan character and his barcelona character Um, and um, yeah it kind of makes the criterion box set even more appropriate linking that way there were the sort of the three dramatic stories i knew that i could write make films of and after that i thought gosh i'm i'm written out of the stories i have that are suitable for films and i started turning towards the idea of um very different subjects and maybe adaptations of books and that kind of thing
0: well you were ahead of the curve because cinematic universes are the way to do it now oh yeah
1: yeah (laughs)
0: Well, another thing that's interesting about Disco is you you did the novelization of it with an epilogue that goes past the film. Um, And I I was looking through that again uh, as prep for this. And sometimes when a director makes a book, writes a book, uh, and they're sort of known for film or have worked in film for a while, it sort of feels like you're reading their script, but they just formatted it like a book and maybe changed it to past tense. Uh, But I thought your style uh, and the the attention that you give to language – lended itself really well to the literary style as well. It it didn't feel like, you know, you think about a novelization being kind of this awkward, clunky form, whereas yours felt like kind of a a reinvention of the movie in some ways. It didn't feel like it was so beholden to it. And it it made it seem like, you know, the the, the version of you who wanted to be Fitzgerald early in your career, before you'd started your career, maybe was able to come through in that way. Is that part of what the appeal was to writing the book?
1: It was, it was And I had a very good editor, uh, Jonathan Glossy From Farrar Strauss And the, um, we had the idea of trying to get A, a book deal A novel deal um, Pretty late And um, and most of the publishers Turned around saying we, we can't get this done and out In time for the film So what's the point, blah, blah, blah And Jonathan Glossy from Farrar Strauss Who's sort of the most prestigious editor Who considered it He said, no, no, no take your time, um, you know, um, we'll just do the best job you can, and, and it'll come out after the movie. Um, so it was going to be two hours, two, two, two years after the movie. And of course, he put it in the catalog before it finished, so he still had to rush it at the end. And And there's a, a mistake I think I make in in that novel, which is, I felt I had to have the whole film story in it in some way and the film has a kind of um i'm not sure what the term is it has a uh, a lull it gets the film gets a little dull uh about two-thirds in three-fifths in um it kind of goes down in, in 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 narrative propulsion and unfortunately i think the novel does go down then too um but I was really happy that a lot of ideas came, a lot of different stories, a lot of different aspects. And there was a sort of a, a, a clever idea that made the novelization work, which is that the Jimmy Steinway Adman character is an aspiring novelist and Castro can't find anyone to do the novelization and he gets the commission to do it. But he's torn because the film is not exactly his story. It's like a different version of it. So he's sort of doing the correction between the actual story the way Charlotte actually was, the way Alice actually was. And and then we continue it. We go on to what happened to the characters afterwards. Um, And... um, And so it was a really good creative experience, but it was a disastrous career experience because the moment you finish a film or or even long before you finish it, you should be working on what your next project is going to be and trying to get that off the ground. And um, there are a couple of factors that, um, um, you know, led to a sort of very long career pause, and that was one of the factors.
0: One thing Stillman has, to my knowledge, gotten no credit for is that he's one of the first American directors to create a multiverse. I spoke with Taylor Nichols, who starred in both Metropolitan and Barcelona, about the unusual circumstances of his appearances in The Last Days of Disco, where in one scene he cameos as his Metropolitan character, and in the other he appears as his Barcelona character. What was it like to reprise those roles in these two cameos in The Last Days of Disco?
2: Um, it was great. It, it, it was fun to be. I, I was in New York. I had already moved to Los Angeles at that point, but I was back in New York doing a play and there wasn't really a role for me in, in last days of disco. So it was great to kind of come back and, and be on the set and and work in a couple of the different scenes with different actors and reprise those, those roles. I, I, I really like Charlie and Ted both in fact, someone mentioned to me recently about, God, I wonder what the hell Charlie's doing now, you know, at age 60 or whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm sure he has downward social mo- <laughs> mobility all the way. But uh, but it, but it was fun to do those and it was fun to see the set. And and that was even a, a bigger set with with, you know, bigger name actors and a little bit more money and, and all that
0: it's funny, you have mentioned this a couple of times where, you know, it'd be great to work with some of these people again. It'd be fun to catch up with these characters. And, you know, the the nineties had a lot of the, you, you were able to catch up with the characters in last days of disco. And we are now in the age of legacy sequels. Is, is there a possibility right. of a, a metropolitan uh, you know reunion of sorts? Well, you're the one who's talking to
2: Wit about that. I, <laughs> you know, Wit and I see each other often, but we, we don't really talk about that. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that there's necessarily a market for it. I do think it would be fun to explore and to see, you know, where some of these characters are. Um, but Metropolitan's kind of a special little uh movie, and and maybe it's best just to leave it there and 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 not worry about trying to strike lightning twice. Um, that that said, one of the things Witt has often talked about, I don't know if he mentioned this, mentioned this when you were talking with him, but he had always talked about doing a western with Chris and me. Partly because he could do it in two shots, two cowboys, you know, standing at the bar, two cowboys on horseback, two cowboys sitting around the fire. Um, and that bodes well for the way Wit writes. Um, and so I, I would be interested in exploring something like that um, with Wit and with Chris or with, you know, with whatever Wit chose to um, devise. Because I do think we have more to say together, the, the three of us. I think we do have more to to do together.
0: After the break, we'll discuss how Stillman and collaborator Mark Suazo established a coherent sound to each of his films, as well as how disco could become both a beloved conclusion to his trilogy and the start of a 12-year gap in his filmography. Stay tuned.
4: To us. I'm sure you'll be amazed. Big fun to be had by everyone. It's
1: up to you.
2: I thought better of you than that. You did? Well, wrong again. Listen, you've got all their books and all their documents. Why do you need me who knew practically nothing? This is the only body I've got. Bye, Josh. Kennedy Airport. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock, and this is part three of our series on the films of Witz Stillman, independent director in the 1990s. A man described as pre-Mumblecore, post-screwball, a polite satirist, and most importantly, a singular voice.
2: You know that Shakespearean admonition to thine own self be true? It's premised on the idea that thine own self is something pretty good, being true to which is commendable, but what if thine own self is not so good. What if it's pretty bad? Would it be better in that case not to be true to thine own self? See, that's my situation. The one I like is a two Brute. There are different ways of being loyal. Some may seem on the surface disloyal, but they're not. There's a higher loyalty. And the way I see it, Brutus was a good friend to Caesar.
0: But sometimes what gets lost in the description of the voice in filmmakers like Stillman is the importance of all the sounds that aren't dialogue, most notably music. And music is very important to Stillman's stories. I can't think of another filmmaker who relies on dancing in quite the way Stillman does. So I talked with Stillman's regular composer, Mark Suazo, about how they came up with the sound of a Wit Stillman film. So Barcelona, it feels bigger... Um, the sound of it does, and just the movie itself is bigger than Metropolitan. It plays with tone in uh, more varied ways, but it also still has, I think, in terms of the the film itself, the visual grammar, the rhythm of the characters and the style, and the music itself, it does feel like an extension in a lot of ways from what you guys did on Metropolitan. And I I don't know how much of that was intentional, or if there were, was there a, a conversation about how much to carry over and how much to shift, or were you thinking in terms of uh you know it being connected in that way or did it just sort of happen because wit has his style and, and the music is going to kind of adhere to that and there just will be some uh, commonalities
4: it's um that that the uh the characters in the movie bring their uh their musical tastes and backgrounds uh and preconceptions uh into the music that reflects them on the screen and uh, Wit has a great love of dancing, and um, uh, you can hear that in in all the music, the you know the cha-Chas and the the conga line dances in Metropolitan, and the um, Ruben Blades uh, music in Barcelona, and some of the some of the other uh, you know diegetic music that occurs has um, you know very much this feeling of vibrant dance society, even the Pennsylvania 65000 bit has a same love of dancing. Well, the dancing kind of communicates to a European club scene in Barcelona and it try, we tried to capture some of the spirit of the American in Paris or the American in Europe uh, in a generalized Europe, not not any specific country. And outside of the fact that you know folks like Wit know how prevalent salsa was in Barcelona at the time outside of that, you don't get any specifically, you know, Barcelona rooted music, you know, Nuevo Flamenco, you know, nothing that that would key you into Barcelona per se. But the music actually has kind of a, you know, Euro disco feel, if if you will, to to a lot of it or, or some threads of that. It's similar to Metropolitan in that they um, music tends to act like uh frames for a vignette and i think uh, that is you know one characteristic that that wit likes i mean as a in some cases you find music as being um you know the camera's point of view uh in which it's really the character's point of view and the, the music kind of frames each character's uh, bit upon the stage
0: What was the philosophy and the process like when you adjusted from working on Metropolitan in Barcelona to then the last days of disco, which seemed like a fairly different assignment?
4: Well, um, it was and it wasn't. I mean, you know, in some sense, uh, you know, my roots might be slightly different in terms of my musical roots, but a lot of our uh, music we love comes down to the same thing. You know, uh, I think the exception being... uh, uh, one of the uh, the the avant-garde jazz um, uh, artists that uh, the characters look at in uh, uh, Vinyl Hampton, I guess it is, in, in <laughs> Barcelona. That's uh, you know Wit's take on that. Uh, his it, it describes his uh, feelings toward that style. Uh, I don't necessarily share that, but but we do have a lot of music in common, and and certainly you know the. Uh, some of um, disco, I suppose, is composed, is comprised partly of uh, music of the era uh, that sounds like the era, but also there's something that Witt loves about mu- movies from the uh, 50s and 60s, the Rock Hudson, Doris stay movies that have this uh, earnest, busy, um, Feeling of um, you know young people advancing in the big city, you know, and that's really you know the Chloe Savini character in that uh, in, in Disco has you know is very much an aspiring you know person in the publishing field, and and I think um, the some of the music pegs that are the interstitial pieces are more or less based on trying to evoke that feeling somewhat, the idea that a um, um, you know, an up-and-coming young person in New York in this vibrant, uh, vibrant city or something. And, th- and those, you know, pizzicato strings and winds kind of incorporate some of that um, uh, that feeling of uh, exhilaration and anticipation. And that's one thing I think the that uh, works with, it works in the office scenes, oftentimes in, in disco. And, you know, so that's the complement to the kind of soul music that that we see uh, that accompanies Josh, for example, um, and the anti-disco montage. There are a couple of scenes which are, uh, I should mention that several, more than several of these, of the musicians who are on that session were also on Doctor's Orders, which is the first piece we hear, the Carol Douglas uh, um, hit, uh, disco hit. And, um, that intro is one example of kind of using uh using music of the time to frame it so um it actually segues from doctor's orders into an original piece uh that i wrote that accompanies that exposition of of the characters and then um as they go into the club we segue back into doctor's orders and um using um you know, my music to frame this stuff allows it kind of allowed me to move in and out of the speech to kind of avoid it enough that you'd be able to hear it where you might not if there was a vocal version that was careening through the whole thing, uh, a vocal piece. So, um, so having an instrumental breakdown, if you will, that would uh, would allow the setup in terms of the um, uh, introducing the characters, introducing the situation, and getting into the club uh, all helped to help to keep the excitement going on, and allowed me to use use the music to kind of anticipate what was going on as uh, Chloe is is stopped by the guard, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, by the by the bouncer. So uh, music has a way in these movies, and if if you notice uh, the character of Josh, who's, uh, you know, and some of the more, uh, there there are a couple of like sad uh, sections. There's the anti-disco montage and several pieces that are accompanied by this uh, gospel tinged uh, music that uh, evokes maybe uh harold melvin and blue notes if you don't know me by now and pieces like that what's interesting is that they are both evocative uh of the era but in many ways they are there there is an irony just like there is with the greta gerwig character and damsels in distress you know being accompanied by a, a you know by a gospel tune it seemed there's some irony there that uh, that works and is and is not mocking at all it's it's um you know basically saying that I don't know in some ways it it gives um, credence to the uh to the depth of these characters the depths of of their feeling they're not fleeting they're not you know uh, they might be light in context of the of the piece but there's uh there's an inner depth that uh, I think with would want to portray or wanted to to portray in those situations.
0: In addition to being way ahead of the curve with his multiverse dimension to the last days of disco, Stillman also beat Quentin Tarantino by two decades in his choice to novelize his own film you were talking about how you chose to write the novel. It's not quite a novelization, but uh, its own sort of thing uh, of The Last Days of Disco as a book. And you wanted to do it in a schedule that you were comfortable with, which wouldn't sync up exactly with the release. It would take a little bit longer. And so I think you mentioned that you were not working on a movie directly because you had to figure out how does this work as a book and how do you figure that out on a schedule that works for you. So I think you'd said basically that that maybe was uh, a move that you would do differently now because it took you away from the momentum of your film career? Is that is that accurate?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's bad to regret things that end up being some work that people can read or see. So I don't regret it that way, but it did have the effect, I think, of slowing down career momentum. But also... Um, Disco wasn't perceived as a success in the industry, so that could have been a factor too. Um, And I had illusions about being able to work in London more successfully than I did. Um, It was really the publishers who decided all that in the sense that um, all the publishers passed on the book because they couldn't get anything out No matter how fast i wrote it in time for the film release they were thinking in terms of conventional novelizations that have to come out at the same time as the movie and this very literary um editor jonathan glassy at for our stress he said oh no this sounds great but you know take your time and do do it as a good book and so um inspired by that i um signed on and it it did take a while and came out two years after the movie
0: Was this a point where, I know when we talked last, you mentioned that you started with these ambitions to be sort of a Fitzgerald-like author, novelist. Did you consider writing novels as maybe alternative to making movies or supplementary to the the filmmaking that you were doing as sort of original novels as opposed to ones related directly to the movies you were making?
1: Well, I found both the idea of doing screenplays and novels very intimidating, doing long-form story writing. Um, with um, Metropolitan, I, when I finished the script, I said, oh, this could be a novel. And I did send it to an agent I knew who wasn't interested. And then when it came, when Metropolitan came out, maybe we already covered this, um, a very good publisher um, wanted to bring it as a novel after that. And I started working on it, but it was going very slowly and I didn't have any sort of clever idea to unlock it. Um, and I had the commission to write the Barcelona script as living in Barcelona. So I said, I, I have to, I have to concentrate on the Barcelona script. So the Metropolitan novel never happened. It was announced by this catalog, Soho Press. And for a long time it lived on an Amazon as a, as a novel, but I had to sort of tell them many times that it's actually doesn't exist. <laughs> and, um, then, um, with, uh, love and friendship, um, that actually was sold as a novel based on the screenplay before i even knew i'd be able to do the movie so i was ahead of the game there but i didn't write it before i did the movie but there is this period between when you do something called lock picture and when um and 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 when you do the sound mix when they're doing all the sound editing and so they were very keen on bringing it out with the movie and so i wrote it really quickly while we were doing um sound editing and other things and that came out slightly before the movie the love and friendship novelization it was a real struggle but i loved having that deadline
0: what's it like writing a book as opposed to a screenplay
1: well it's sensory deprivation because the great thing about cinema is even though it's only using um i guess your ears and your eyes it feels like you have a whole sensory world around you to play with and then um with a novel you're really so so limited um but it's also hugely liberating um too so it's focusing it on these words on a page and um but you have huge freedom in terms of ideas and the budget is unlimited.
0: Does that make you ever want to write something that would be kind of unfilmable in the sense that it would be, you know, take hundreds of millions of dollars to produce?
1: Yeah, I am writing something that um, seemed to me was unfilmable, but um, I think I'd be able to film it actually. And I think actually to interest publishers – I have to give them the implication that it could be a movie someday, because there's not enough, I guess, um, money in them publishing just a literary novel that'll never be connected to a film. But you don't have to. And, f- and I've seen ways. Of, I've seen ways of doing the idea that I had. Um, I want to do a novel about the um, about the Kennedy administration because I was a kid. My father's in the Kennedy administration, and I was a kid down then. And all the archives are now open, and so I think it could be a really good novel.
0: Next week, we'll dive into Stillman's struggle to get another film off the ground, something that would eventually take 12 years. But before we close the book on this era of with Stillman's career, we're going to end today's show with Mariah E. Gates' plea for Stillman to reunite with his old mascot.
3: I, you know, I have one last thing I wanted to say about Chris Eichmann, um, because he's so funny, is he also is such a great um, physical comedian, but not in the sense of like, Pratt falls. He uh, he has that eye patch in Barcelona, and somehow doesn't make it ridiculous. Like he makes he he he's so funny with that eye patch. I don't know how he does it. Um, it's, it's just one of the funniest performances in the '90s, I think. But then also in um, Last Days of Disco, <laughs> he snorts the coffee. <laughs> that scene is so funny. I sometimes just watch that scene. You
2: really think the neurological effects of coffee are similar to that of cocaine? I read somewhere.
3: <laughs> <coughs> Who snorted? I mean, I, it's ridiculous, but it's also like you can imagine. He plays it so uh, realistically. Like he, Maybe he has snorted coffee in his life. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, what's great about that character is he is this heightened it, it, as you said. But also, he always feels like a real person. You feel like you saw that guy in a diner snorting coffee. This is my plea for him to come back to comedy because he's so funny.
0: I'm right there with you. The Entertainment is a production of KIOS 915 FM Omaha Public Radio. It is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from the last days of disco, desperado, slacker, and metropolitan. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Nobler.